the the logic behind Jesus's words here is is quite quite simple. Jesus is saying a, a branch that's disconnected from its source of life, from the vine, cannot live. If a branch is cut off from its source of nourishment and life, it dies. In fact, when, when my family over Christmas break, we went to Florida, and when we returned, uh, one of the trees in the backyard, a large branch had broken off, and we're, I went out in the backyard, and my son's standing there, and he goes, it's okay, just stick it in the ground and water it, and it will grow, right? <laughs> like, sorry, buddy, that's not how it, how it works, right? Uh, some plants, not branches, right? Once it's cut off from the source of life, it dies. I, I think right now, some one of the... Uh, a word picture that we've gone back to a couple times as a church when we've talked about looking at the society around us. Uh, there was, a, there was a, an ethicist in the middle of the 20th century named Elton Trueblood. And, and Trueblood gave this word picture. Where he said, you know, what's going on right now in our society, he called it cut flower society. Uh, you know, cut flowers like the flowers you, you buy for your spouse and, you, and they're cut off at the root and you put them in a vase. He said, when you, when you cut off flowers from their root, what happens is actually for a while, you put them in that vase and you put that, that weird dusty stuff in there that's supposed to make them grow, right? And, and, you, and, and all of a sudden, over the next few days, what happens is they actually bloom. They, they look more vibrant. They, they look alive. And then what happens after about a week or so, depending on where you bought your flowers, <clears throat> men, Valentine's Day is coming up, uh, but depending on where you bought your flowers, after about a week or so, the flowers begin to slowly wilt, and eventually the petals begin to fall off, and it dies. What Trueblood was saying was our society, this is in the 50s, he said, I don't know if it's a generation, if it's two generations, but what we don't realize is we're cut off from the source, our, what you say is Judeo-Christian worldview, and now that we've been cut off from the source, we'd, it may, it's going to bloom for a while, it's going to look really maybe exciting and whatnot, um, we can do this and self-sufficiency and and kind of this humanity first, but what will happen eventually is that actually the flowers, the, the, the petals will begin to wilt and fall off. And he said, I don't know if that'll be one generation or two or three, but it will eventually happen. And I use that analogy in talking about our society because I think in many ways when we talk about that, we go, yes. Like, I, I see that around me. It's kind of, we feel it all around us. But what Jesus is saying here is before we get to a societal level, we also have to look at an individual soul level. And what Jesus is saying is, what if you are living with a cut flower soul? What, are you, or what if you have been going for maybe years, maybe decades, for a while where you've actually been uprooted, you're cut off from the source, you're no longer a branch in the vine, and what Jesus is saying is, you are meant to have life in me, and if you're cut off, it may even actually bloom and seem exciting for a time. It may seem like for a while you can live autonomously. Autonomous literally means your own law, that you can live apart from the law of God. You can live apart from what God has revealed. Go your own way. Make your own path. Leave religion behind. Leave Jesus behind. What Jesus is saying is for a time it may look like it, but you actually are a cut flower soul, and what happens is eventually it will wilt and it will die. And so this morning, what Jesus is going to do in these, uh, or the next two weeks, we're going to be in John 15, and we're going to be looking at what does it take as a church, as a people, as individual souls, to not become cut flower souls, but to be souls who abide in Jesus, so that we have life, and we have nourishment, and we have joy in him. So what we're going to look at this morning is first, the abiding life. What does the abiding life look like? What's this vision Jesus gives us? And second, the cutoff life. 
And then third, the power for abiding. How do we abide? Where do we begin? So let's pray and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you, you make this so clear and so simple. This image of a vine and branches. Father, you as a vine dresser, Lord, would you help us to, to understand the, the depth of this, yet at the same time, the simplicity of this, so that we would abide in you, that we would find life in you, that we would trust you, Father. Lord, would you give each of us, Spirit, would you guide us into what the implications for our lives would be from this? Spirit, would you bring this word into our souls so that it would not land into shallow soil, but it would land in deep, rich, fertile soil that's ready to receive, that's ready to abide? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus gives us in verse 1 a very simple image of the Christian life. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So what he's saying here is, I am the vine, so there's a vine, and I am the, so I am the source of life. I am the very place where anything in this world, in this cosmos, can actually find life. I'm the source of all life, all joy, all meaning, all truth. And then he also says, my father is the vine dresser. My father tends to the vine. My father oversees the growth of the vine. My father prunes the vine, as we'll see. Now, what he's doing here is he actually answers two foundational, big questions of life. One is, what is the source of life? And second, uh, what is, what's going on in my life? What's happening? Why is what's happening in my life happening all around me? So what's the source of life? Well, Jesus, again, what he's saying, and this is something that's been again and again and again in John's gospel, that Jesus is meant to be the source of life. John's gospel is all about how we find life in God. As It's not just about having your guilt removed. The gospel is that, but it's also more. It's so that you'd be reconciled to life with the God of the universe. And Jesus is saying, you cannot be connected to the God of the universe unless you are connected via me, unless you are attached to me and one with me. It changes how you deal with your guilt. I've always said, I think there are two sides to what every human being, I mean, there are lots of other things, but two primary things we overlook that every human being is constantly walking around trying to deal with is how do I deal with my guilt, the darkness within me? And then also, and it's not just enough, though, to get rid of that, and then because now you're neutral. Now I'm just kind of vanilla, right? I'm just right in the middle. I, I got rid of my guilt, but then the other side of the coin is you as a human being need to know, how do I, how do, where do I find righteousness? Like, to be good, to, be, to put it in common cultural language, just to be enough, to be living as I should. Only, Jesus says, by being rooted in him can we find the answers to those things. Can we not just find the answers intellectually, but can we find the realities and experience them? Jesus then says, and we'll come back to that, but Jesus says, why are, he's answering the question, why are things happening in my life? Look at verse 2. He goes on to say, the Father is a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may be more fruitful. What's he saying there? He's saying, why does the Father prune? Why does the Father come along? And by the way, pruning, because I know we live in a 21st century, and all of us are like, I have no idea. I'm not a horticulturalist or whatever it is, right? Like pruning means when, when something grows and there are all these little things kind of growing off of it, where what happens is all these things that are growing off of it, the danger is that those things that are, that are coming off, they sap you of life. 
And so as you're growing as a branch, what he's saying is that there are all these things that are growing off of you. And as those things are coming off of you, all the energy of your life, all of your time. Sorry, I don't know what's going on. I'm having a wardrobe malfunction today. Uh, all those things begin to zap you of your spiritual vitality in life. They literally take your time. They take your energy. They take your life. You only have so much life in this world. And he's saying they will begin to draw the energy that you're supposed to be getting from Christ. It will begin to divert your attention. And so what happens is the Father sovereignly comes along and the, the Father prunes these things from our life. The Father does before we usually we're even wise enough to see them. Now, real quick, what is this fruit language? Because when you read it, you go, okay, fruit, I, I get it in relation to a vine. But the thing that's interesting is one of the only, there are two places earlier that's used. The first one in John's gospel is Jesus says, it's already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower may reap and reaper may rejoice together. He's talking about eternal souls. And in other words, what's happening here when he uses fruit language, fruit is not just kind of like, hey, I did some nice things. Fruit is the kind of heavenly, eternal, unfading reality that comes forth in your life, in the hard circumstances of your life, yet it buds through and flowers. In other words, it's this eternal reality, this eternal effect, this eternally significant thing, these characteristics in your life, these, these things that you do that then bear fruit and ripple throughout your relationships, throughout your city, throughout your family because of the faithfulness of God and his work in you. In other words, this fruit is always referring to eternally significant realities. And he's saying the Father wants you to know for your life not to just be this fleeting thing and then it's over before you know it and that's it. But to see in the midst of your life it budding forth, bearing, just bursting forth with this fruit that is just heaven breaking in through your life. The Father wants you to know that kind of living. And so the Father prunes us. Now, Scripture refers to this kind of pruning in other language, but it's all throughout the New Testament especially because we have this in uh, Hebrews. It refers to the Father's discipline. And, and listen to the reasoning why God the Father does this. It says, and you, have you forgotten, this is Hebrews 12, 5, uh, 5 through 11, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, and I would say in daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." For the, moment, all dis for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. He even says it right there, for a moment, this doesn't seem pleasant. See, the difficult thing is that the pruning, the reason why God has to prune these things from our life and the reason why it doesn't feel good is because, of course, we, he's pruning it because we wouldn't prune it. <laughs> We're fine with these attachments. What he's saying is that God in his love frees us. And it doesn't feel pleasant. I mean, it, 
It means God cuts things off. It means it hurts. It means things are removed from our lives often. But here's the thing. It's not punishment. It's nourishment. And why does he do it? He does it again because these things, these unhealthy attachments, these are things that zap us, that sap us of that spiritual vitality. They distract our lives. They pull us off the path. They keep us from focusing on Christ, on eternal things, and, and on the ultimate purpose of our life. It, it, it tears us off to look into cheap fakes and imitations for removing our guilt, cheap fakes and imitations for giving us that sense of righteousness and purpose. And he says, no, no, no. And the Father comes along and he prunes lovingly. I mean, how many of us have been in a relationship, like a dating relationship, and you look back and you go, in hindsight, you see the Father's love. You see God's wisdom. But at the time, it's painful. It feels like life is completely over. And oftentimes, the things where the Father prunes, it does feel like life is over because it's usually something we're getting our sense of life from. And he does it so that it frees us so that it wouldn't be something that over time we would get decades in and we would see that this whole time my life has been poured out for something that just keeps taking and taking and can't give the life that it promises while it just dangles a carrot a little bit more, a little bit longer. So here's the question. I mean, is do you have things right now in your life? This could be answering why are things happening? I know there's a you got to be careful to have a one size fits all answer. Why do things happen in my life? But in terms of let's just in terms of the things where maybe things are being removed from your life. And it could be many different things. It could be everything from a relationship, it could be everything from like climbing the ladder to something, it could be possessions, it could be all kinds of things. Perhaps have you ever stopped to consider perhaps the father is actually pruning Perhaps right now, this isn't chaos, even though it feels like everything's lost and I'm losing my, my sense of just myself in the midst of it. In fact, perhaps you could be in the, when you feel you're in the most chaotic state, that in fact, you're in the best place, that in fact, you're actually in the Father's hands and that right now, he's lovingly pruning. And right now, what it means in this time, it means not to run to, oh, because in those moments, we think, oh, God's punishing me. In fact, he could be freeing you. In fact, he'll be giving you life. In fact, that's why Jesus says what he does in verse 3. Because immediately you go, the Father's pruning me, and you go, wait, God's just punishing me, and God's just kind of ripping stuff off. And remember, pruning is something that's very carefully done. I remember I was, we were in our garden, and I, Lauren wanted me to pull stuff off, and I'm just after like, right? She's like, what are you doing, right? It's God's not just going there and ripping stuff off, so it's like tearing off the stem and everything. He's very carefully cutting things out by design, very lovingly. And Jesus says it's not punishment because I have cleansed you. Look at verse 3. This is why he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Back in chapter 13, Jesus, when he gives them communion, he says, I, and he washes their feet, he says, I have washed you with my blood. And he comes back to this and says, I've already washed you. In other words, the Father is not punishing you. That would be exacting double payment. He's saying, I've washed you with my blood. I've removed the payment for, for sin. This is not condemnation. This is not punishment. This is the Father's loving care in your life. The Father doesn't atone for our sin by pruning. The Father sets us free from sin through pruning. 
He wants us to be full of joy, bearing eternal fruit. And how do we lean into that reality? Jesus gives us a clear statement of how in verse 4. He says, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus says, he gives a clear statement of this reality. He says, abide, like make your home in me. Find your shelter in me. Put your roots in me. Abide is this word that just means dwell, completely be immersed in this reality as much as you can, in any way you can, with all the resources in your life. Again and again, this is the primary thing every day to fight for in your individual soul, in your home and your friends and your family is to vie for their lives to be anchored in Jesus. And in the midst of it, what he says is my job is to bring the power for you to be able to abide, to bring the reality so that you might abide in the presence of a holy God and be one with him. My father's job is to prune you. Your job is to trust and respond by faith. Now we'll look at, I'm going to come back to how. So how do we abide in a moment? But first, what, if we don't abide, what will happen is we'll live a cut, cut off life, be the, the cut flower soul. So second, the cut off life. Look what Jesus says our life will look like then in verse 5, continuing. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. He is, it is that bears much fruit, but for apart from me you can do nothing. Nothing. Look at what Jesus, Jesus is saying. Unless you abide in me, you can do nothing. You're like, that's pretty absolute. That's pretty stark, right, Jesus? Nothing? What does he mean by nothing? Well, on one level, it's pretty, in one level, it's actually, we forget. Step back and think about this for a second. He's saying, I am the vine. Throughout John's gospel, we've been saying, I am the ground of all of reality. I am the word of God. I'm the logos. I have made all things. I am all of reality. So how could you as a creature who are finite, how could you live and do anything apart from me? He's saying it's actually crazy. If we step back and think about it, how could we actually do anything when we didn't even create ourselves? Anselm, a church father, said, he alone has of himself all that he has, talking of God, while other things have nothing of themselves. Any other things having nothing of themselves have their only reality from him. Sometimes in the modern world, technology allows us. I've said, I I think the best place to start with theology of technology is it gives us this magical sense that we can somehow climb the ladder to be like God. And it, it, it causes us in the modern world to, until we grow into frailty with old age or something happens in our life and comes along and sideswipes us, we forget how finite, how weak that we are creatures. That apart from God giving us life, apart from our creator creating us, we can't do anything. And to do anything else is actually to be crazy and irrational to live any other way. But on another level, nothing doesn't mean that you can't, for instance, I don't know, throw a football, right? You can't shave your face. You can't drive a car. It doesn't, nothing doesn't mean you can't. Clearly, right now, there are people all around the world doing these things. They're doing something, right? <laughs> so you're going, what does Jesus mean? If you're not me, you can't, you will be able to do nothing. Well, look at the verse 5 again. He juxt, Notice how he juxtaposes fruit-bearing fruit and not being able to do anything. He said, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus is saying, in terms of bearing fruit through your life, you can do nothing. Your life will be able to function 
Because of my grace and common grace and the fact that I've created you as a creature in my creation, you will be able to get up and you can run and you can accomplish amazing things. But ultimately, your life will not be able to reap eternal fruit, have an eternal effect, unless you are in me and you are connected to me. You'll have a cut flower soul and it may bloom for a time, but it will end in wilting. But Jesus says it will end in wilting, not only in this life, but also in the next. So why Jesus says what he says next. Look at verse 6, one of the starkest verses in all of Scripture. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus is saying if we don't abide in him, in the end, not only will we, our life be like a branch on the ground that will just slowly wither like a cut flower soul. In other words, we'll experience hell in this life. But also, he says that there is an eternal hell. What he's saying is if you live the autonomous life, if you live cut off from me, you plug your soul and you find that salvation in your achievements, you find that soul in another, or that, that salvation in another person, if you find that salvation in your social media standing, all the different things. We can make it out of anything. You could make it out of your gummy bear collection. I don't know why that, that was the spirit right there <laughs> speaking me to someone. <laughs> Your attractiveness, right? We, we've said this before. That, uh, what's the quote? It says, you're, if, if, you, if you find, I was reading the other day this article where it's about what's called now glammies, okay? That's probably why I went to gummies. Uh, glammies are now the emerging 60-year-old plus women who want to continue to be able to live like they're 20-year-olds. And this refusal for that generation that now worships youth to look at the fact that they're aging and they're moving towards this reality but wanting to stay forever young. And so what they're, they call themselves glammies. They're grandmas, but they're glamorous, right? That's actually pretty cool. But, but good, good branding, but, but it's this idea. And it's like you are going to die a thousand deaths before they, they bury you. Every day when you look in the mirror, there's another thing. You have to tell yourself another narrative. You have to tell yourself another lie. What Jesus is saying is don't live your life with that wiltering reality again and again and again where you're just trying to make it work when, in fact, if you just look at it, you'd say, I'm not made to live like this. I bought into these things. I bought into these lies. I plugged my life into this, and eventually I retire, and it's all gone. Eventually I die, and the resume's all gone. Eventually, at the very best, I'll have a statue somewhere in front of something, and I won't even know about it because I'll be six feet in the ground. And the thing people worship in that statue won't even be the real me, but some projection. What he's saying is don't, don't, don't root yourself there. It wilts. But Jesus makes clear if you prepare yourself, that's living and investing in a hell in this life. And hell, I mean broadly in terms of just apart from the presence of God in your life. And what he says is when you prepare this life for that, then what happens is in eternity, that's where you go. Where you prepared yourself for. Here we have one of the clearest allusions to hell. And when I 
And let me be clear. Three words that define hell biblically. We see this throughout Scripture in many different ways. Hell is eternal conscious torment. Hell is eternal in duration. It is conscience, you are aware, you don't cease to be. And it's torment, there is punishment, there is pain under the wrath of God. And this is what scripture, we can dance all around it, but what scripture comes back to again and again, and Jesus refers directly to it there. And why? Why, you might be asking, why punish for eternity? Well, the simple answer to that is God made you in his image with an eternally lasting soul. As we'll see in one second, because God is love, you'll either be embraced in his love or you will be under his jealous love for eternity. See, as we've, we've talked about this here at Anthem before, but Christianity is not about not being judged. The message of Christianity is, oh, you have this grace thing and then there's no judgment. No, Christianity is actually at the very core about the fact that we will be judged. The question is not, will you be judged? The question is, will you be judged in Christ or based on your own merit? Will you be judged as one who abides and is a branch getting nourishment and life from the vine who is the one who is eternal love, who is eternal life, or will you be judged as one who's broken off and cut off from the vine? If you're in Christ for eternity, you'll be embraced in the love of God in Christ, and you'll be, as we saw a few weeks ago, in eternity in that place called love, immersed in the, the triune community of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit with one another forever. Or if you're cut off from Christ, you'll be excluded from God's love and fall under his wrath. Another way to put it is God's love won't be for you, but God's love will be against you for eternity. It's kind of like the Taken analogy, you know, like the Taken movie. I feel like that's old now, right? You were younger, like I was in kindergarten. Taken's like this dad who like vengeful, like we all go, oh, God's wrath against sin, God's wrath against like when, when, when there's rebellion against his holiness, but you have to understand that it's in the same way that if you kidnap my, my daughter, I, you will see my love for my daughter. You kidnap my daughter, you do something to my daughter, you're going to see a different side of my love, and it won't look the same. And in fact, if I, as a father, I stood there while you kidnapped my daughter and did whatever you wanted to her, and I just went like, I'm just loving I'm loving, I love them, I love you, I love everyone, I love things, I love all things, right? Like I just kept saying that in all things that could be done, but I didn't turn then my love for my daughter into a jealous love to free her, to save her, so that she might be in my presence and freed from that evil. You would not call me loving. We intuitively know this. And our Heavenly Father says, there is a reality, which is my holiness. I want you to be in my presence forever and have freedom from the fall, from evil. And God will not make allowance for one slithering sin into the garden of the new heavens and new earth. But he will remove it. And what Jesus is saying is, if you abide in me, if you come to me for life, I will remove your sin. I will remove that guilt. I will remove that reality and give you a new heart so that you can be in the Father's presence forever in my holy presence. But what he says is, if not, then where you will go is the place where my love, my jealous love is against you. And what he says is the only way Jesus, and when you say, well, that's not fair. What about all the people who they just don't, they don't know. Well, here's what he's saying. The invitation is for you if right now, because here's the thing. I know right now culturally, no, let me just, 
let me, my guess is that there is nowhere else where you will hear someone clearly warn you. Hell is real. It is a reality that will come. You will either spend eternity in heaven or hell. This is what scripture reveals again and again and again. And so what it, what, what's being, there's, and there are all kinds of cultural narratives right now to say that guilt, that, that consciousness that I have, that perhaps there's something there and we just try to cover it up with some kind of a narrative or tell ourselves that that's just like, you know, societally constructed. We tell ourselves that my, the reason my lifestyle doesn't work is merely because of societal oppression. The reason why our souls are conflicted is merely because of some weird super ego that I'm dealing with. All those things are just ways to try to suppress the reality, which is in our conscience, we can tell and experience the flickering flames of eternity. The kindness and patience of God are meant to lead you to repentance, to come and abide in Christ and turn from the path to hell and the invitation, what Jesus says is, but for my sacrifice, I went up on the cross. I absorbed the jealous wrath of God against sin, against this life-destroying death and destruction and darkness, and it abides in each of you. That's why I, God, took on flesh to become one with you. And what happens, just like in the Old Testament, when a sacrifice, they would place their hand on the head of the sacrifice, look into its eyes while they cut its throat, and, and the blood, and the life blood was the term they'd use in the Hebrew, drain from it, and they'd watch the life drain from its eyes, and the whole time they would chant what their sin was. Recognizing this sacrifice and this blood is necessary to cleanse me, to free me, and what Jesus is saying is every day, the first and foremost way that you abide is that you see me as that sacrifice, that you recognize that there is sin in your life, there's something separating you from God, and you see me on the cross hanging there, and you see in God pouring out his wrath, you say, that is my sin. That is the wrong I've done. That is the death my life has reaped. Listen, stop, stop in our day where we don't have any redemption, where we constantly are running after. We say we don't believe in hell, but our culture is banishing everyone to a social hell because and canceling everyone because we don't have an ultimate hell injustice. And don't live with hating yourself and punishing yourself because you believe there's no hell there. There is a hell there. Your conscience is... Re- Revealing something, but God says, also hear of my love. Yes, it's true. Yes, it's there. Yes, what you're experiencing is resonating with something that is there. There is evil within you, but I will cleanse you. I love you. I will free you as my child. I will give you a new heart. I've done it by giving you my very heart, my very beloved son who came into the world, and he becomes the sacrifice of sins. And if you will every day look to him and say, that is where I find salvation. That is the one in who I find life. I will die to this kind of life and I'll be rooted in him and find my life in him. My career can't save me. My spouse can't save me. My attractiveness can't save me. My fame can't save me. My bank account can't save me. None of these things can save me. They all can be good things, but ultimately they don't save me. My ultimate rootedness and source of life is him. Jesus says these things because he wants us to, he's shaking us to go, wake up, find your life in me, root yourself in me, abide in me, don't find yourself for eternity cut off. If your soul is living with the consequences of living cut off, then stop what you're doing and repent. Turn from that, turn to me. I will receive you and find life in me. 
Don't live cut off. Don't live cut off for eternity. But abide in the one who is the very beloved love of God. And that's where we go to next. How do we do that? How do we do that? So far, this imagery has been rather abstract. Jesus, your vine, or your, I'm the vine, you're the branches, bearing fruit, pruning. So what does that look like? Uh, Jesus, at this point, starts to get concrete. How to abide. Uh, and here's why I want to introduce something. Over the next semester, probably longer, uh, we are going to be focusing on three primary things as a church. One of them we've already, over the last few weeks, we've been addressing. And, and so what we're going to be doing over the next semester is we're going to have this phrase we're going to keep using, which is, it's, and I know it sounds kind of morbid, but death equals gain. That actually one of the things, and what we tend to think of is if we save ourselves, if we live for ourselves, if you do you, <laughs> then we'll gain life. But in fact, actually what the biblical call, the call of Christ is, that actually at the core, it's that when we die to ourselves, that's where we find life. And at the core of it, that is the core of the calling to abide. That if we try to find life in ourselves, and apart from Christ, then ultimately we will lose. This is what Paul picks up in Philippians as well, if you know the New Testament. But ultimately what Jesus says is if you will die to yourself and find life in me, then you will actually gain life. Now, the reason why I say that, I said earlier that there's one other place where fruit is used in John's gospel. There are two places. I gave one. The other one is actually in chapter 12. Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus, that's the first time Jesus tells him about he's going to go to the cross and die and rise again. In other words, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, I am ultimately the one who has to fall to the ground and die. And this is the place of the power that Jesus is giving us. Because if I said, hey, just die to yourself, then now all we are in is stoicism subjugate your desires, and just live with rationality. No, what Jesus is saying is there is an actual reality there, which is I have died, you can die to yourself and follow me. I have fallen to the ground and I have died, but I also conquered the grave and rose again. And if you will die and find life in me, you will walk with me and follow me into that same life. In the life of faith that we are called to as disciples, as a church, is to take Jesus' hand and follow him and trust him. That that is, in fact, true. Now, how do we do that? How do we abide in him? How do we, how do we connect to him every day? Well, the one we've been talking about the last few weeks is actually, we've already been saying it, and I'm going I'm to use this term, seek. That every day what we would do is we would seek God in the word, and in, in the word and prayer. If you look where Jesus goes right away in 7, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. It's the very next verse. He says, if you will abide in my words, you will abide in my truth. If you will abide in what, if you want to understand the world around you, I am the creator. I've told you, revealed how everything works and how to live. And so we seek God in the word and prayer. And as we build our lives on God's word and walk in dependence, we go to him in prayer. We live in dependence on him. We prove God's glory. Here's what's interesting. Now, here's one of the things. You want to experience. Look at what Jesus is going to say here. If you want to experience God, what he's saying is being in the word and prayer. Because then look what he says next. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What happens is when we trust God in his word, when, as we've used the phrase, when we learn to doubt the doubts, 
We're in a society around us that's always saying, this isn't true, that's not true, how about you live this way, the Bible's wrong, what about this thing over here? And, and constantly we're plagued with doubts. To be a believer or anyone of faith in the, new, in the modern world is to be plagued by doubt. But one of the things we have to do with that in response is not just to lie down, but instead to learn to doubt the doubts. When the doubts come in in question, we learn to question. When the serpent says, did God really say, you turn and you say, why should I listen to you? You learn, is what you're saying true? You learn to doubt the doubts, but what Jesus is saying is then over time, when we trust God and we follow him, we begin to not only doubt the doubts, but glory in the glories. And we begin to see that we glorify the Father, and in fact, actually, when you walk with the Lord over time, you see this fruit in your relationships, you see this fruit in your life, and you prove that God is good and what he's revealed to us. And the whole reason for this is he says it's so that we would know the love of God. That's why in verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. All I'm doing is going verse by verse here, just explaining the logical flow of this. He says, when you have that, when you glorify me and you experience it, what you do is you're finding, you're experiencing the love of God. Now, here's what's interesting. I have just said, when you obey God, then you experience his love. Notice that's exactly where Jesus is going to go next. Then in verse 10, and it's a weird phrasing. Catch this. Because he says, if, a conditional statement, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, doesn't that at first reading seem a little backwards? Wait, God, even we as a church say, well, know, love, and obey Jesus. If you know him, you'll love him. And if you love him, then obedience will just follow. You'll just enjoy it, right? So love. If I love God, then, then there'll be obedience. And he says, if you obey me, then you'll love me. Other way around. Why does Jesus say that? I think we tend to think that those two are in conflict, but they're actually not. What Jesus has been saying here, and this is very important for our times, where it's not necessarily easy to be a Christian. You don't accidentally follow Jesus in our day anymore, as if you ever did, but you know what I mean. One side of the coin is that when we love God, we will obey him, but the other side of the coin is that when we don't feel like loving God, but we choose to or we don't feel like obeying God, but we choose to over time as we prove the goodness of his commands and we see the depths of the evil of turning from him, what happens is over time we see how good and loving he is. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity, he says, no man knows how bad he is until he's tried to be very, very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what the temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ... Because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. See, what Lewis is saying there is over time when you fight sin, when you choose to obey, even in the midst of it, you see the depths of sin, you see the darkness of sin, but also over time you will see that God has given us his commands, he's given us and called us to certain things for a reason, because he is a God who is love, he's created us to know him and to fellowship with him, and even when we can't see the internal logic of his commands, at the end of the day, over time, we see them and we experience them. This is why then he says, I've said these things so that your joy, I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. That's verse 11 right after it. 
See, I'm saying these things so that you would know joy. So whether you're in a place right now where you're like, I love God and it's leading to obedience, or then on the other side, what happens is I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing doubt and I, I don't know, but I know clearly what God's calling me to in terms of my sexuality, in terms of stewardship of my life, in terms of not to leave my spouse, wherever you're at, I know. And right now I'm really struggling with that, but I'm going to obey. I'm going to go to him. And over time, what happens is we see the love of God and that love of God feeds into further obedience. It's an upward cycle rather than a downward cycle. It's just Jesus saying, abide in me, abide in my word, come to me, bring these things to me. But the second thing then is he says that vertical love is then worked out tangibly in horizontal relationships. Look at verse 12 and 17. This is going to be the last part. 12, and, 12 to 17. This is my command that, commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love, and this is interesting. Jesus all of a sudden goes into these one another commands. Notice this. He's been talking about, like, you abide in me, and he's like, love one another. You're like, what? Where, where do we get here? Is this part two? Where, where are we going, Jesus, right? But he talks about loving one, our greater love has no love than this, that someone lay down his love for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So notice right there in verse 12 and verse 17, Jesus brackets everything he says with the same command. Love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. He's saying that love one another, love one another. So what's, how do we fulfill that command to love one another? Well, we'd probably focus on everything in between, right? Love one another, love one another, as I've just commanded you, right in between there. That's where you read. And what is Jesus saying there? There's this principle there where Jesus is saying, I've laid down my life for you. You are to lay down your life for others. You're to have an others-oriented disposition to serve others, to lay down your life for the good of others. You lay down your time, your talent, and your treasure. See, one of the things that's going on here is Jesus is saying it's easy to talk in vague terms about you being a follower of Jesus and loving God and loving humanity and being filled with the love of God, and it now overflows in your life when, in fact, you actually hate your neighbor. There's a lot of that these days. I feel it every day in my own soul. I feel like it's the spirit of the age at this point. Abstract theoretical ideas of loving, but we don't actually know how to love the person right in front of us. G.K. Chesterton, I've read this before, but I'm going to read it again. He says, we make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next door neighbor. Hence he comes to us clad in all the terrors of nature. He is strange as the stars, as reckless and as indifferent as the rain. He is man, the most terrible of beasts. That is why the old religions and the old scriptural language showed so sharp a wisdom when they spoke, not of one's duty towards humanity, but one's duty towards one neighbor. The duty towards humanity may often take the form of some choice, which is personal or even pleasurable. That duty may be a hobby. It may be a dis, dis, dispassion. Uh, that's the wrong word. We may be so made as to be particularly fond of lunatics or specially interested in leprosy. But we have to love our neighbor because he is there a much more alarming reason for a much more serious operation. He is the sample of humanity which is actually given us. Isn't that good? Precisely because he may be anybody, he is everybody. He is a symbol because he is an accident. What Jesus is saying is love your neighbor. He's saying, but just insert instead of neighbor here, one another. Insert in this quote here, insert your other members of this church. What Jesus is saying is it is so easy to talk 
theoretically, when in fact everything I've been saying about abiding in me, you'll know when you're actually bearing fruit, when it actually bears fruit in relationships with other people. Ultimately, we are saved and reconciled for an eternal relationship. And so these relationships here are not only a gift from God, but they're a gift for bearing fruit. In other words, when you're in community, you face the fruit of your life. And so what Jesus is saying here is don't give up on loving one another. Move towards one another. And here's what we're going to do. So the first part is seek the Lord and, and his word and prayer every day. The second thing we're going to be focusing on is eat. Eat with one another weekly. I know that sounds so incredibly simple, and it is so gloriously simple. But yet in our day, how many of us ever actually do it? We are so spread out. We are so isolated. We are so lonely. And we are, it's so foreign to us that we would move towards one another that one of the things we want to just encourage again and again and again and again and again, and here I keep going, and again and again, is to be having meals face to face in Scripture over and over again. These one another's are around a table. And that you would be in life with one another and you'd be having intentional conversations. That one of the ways we make room for one another is we, as Christ made room for us, is that we'd merely set out another plate at the dinner table. We merely make room in our, in our calendar. It's so one of the things my, my wife and I have done over the years is we will set aside one weekday, one weekday night a week, and that's the night when we always just, at the beginning of the week, if it's not full yet, we go, who could we invite over? Like somebody from the church. Who could we invite over? Who could we get to know? Who can we invest in? And some of those relationships are going to be relationships that are really deep. Some of those relationships are going to be new. But I want to encourage you to set a standard in your calendar. To set something in your life where you're saying every week we are going to eat with someone else. We are going to learn. It's one of the most basic ways to learn to tangibly love one another, which is to make space for one another and to move towards one another. Now, you might be asking, hey, man, when we get together, just kind of conversations all over. And I'd say one principle, if you haven't heard this before, instead of being concerned about being interesting, be more concerned about being interested. Ask questions. So often hosting becomes like, listen, we, a lot of us have little kids. You come over to my house, it's not going to look like you're at the Hilton, okay? Like, there's going to be stuff everywhere. You're probably going to be moving crayons out of the way, but there's going to be a dinner table. We're going to do it as best we can, right? But my dog's probably going to jump up and eat your food out of your hand. Like, these things happen. They literally happened the other night. <laughs> Those are examples from the other night. So one of the things, but, but don't expect perfection. Don't expect to be interesting and be so fearful of that, but be interested. How do I get to know these people? How do I draw them out? Now, what that means is these suppers are meant to be strengthening. Jesus says right here, he says to strengthen them, make known to one another the Father's will. All you have to do is come. You could literally ask, What's, what do you sense God's will right now in your life? What he's working out? Help them, admonish them, remind them of God, who God is. Encourage them. Just giving them a meal. Form those connections. I think we make abiding in Christ and being the church so complex when it's like, why would we graduate on from being in God's word and prayer and then eating meals with one another? Like, if we don't have that foundationally, what, why do we add all this other stuff on? Because that's why we as a church are moving towards these things. Now, to help you, we, over the last few weeks, one, we've been giving you for to read the Word of God. I'm going to hold this up again, and we have them over there. If you do not have a Bible reading plan of some sort, we have several over there in the info section. Do not leave this morning with at least grabbing one and considering starting one. It's helpful to have some kind of a plan. You don't have to. 
but it's helpful to have some kind of a pacing or something where you go, okay, I'm going to read this, I'm going to read this, and it gets you there, and as you're in God's Word, and you're praying and communing with Him, what happens is God, slowly then you're like, man, I'm so glad I was in God's Word this morning. Now, how to be intentional with meals. Excited about this one. We created something. You may have seen a table over there. We want you to be able to have intentional conversations. So we created these cards for humanity. Uh, now, yes. So we have right now, we have printed and we have different, what we're going to do is literally put these in a recipe box on our table. So one of the things that's fun, and honestly, guys, this is one of the things that I'm passionate about, why getting these different pastoral roles and getting things set and staffed, because we can resource and equip and just have fun things that we do as a body. And one of the things that we want to do is here you have cards for humanity. My wife was like, man, that's good. You should sell it. And I was like, thanks for the vote of confidence, but I'm pretty sure we'd be sued for copyright infringement. So, uh, so these are free. We are not selling these. Uh, no profit is made. Uh, but these are cards for humanity, and as you see, there are different color-coded cards in this deck for the different types of relationships we just met, or an acquaintance-type question. And so these are cards in here that you can put in a recipe box or something in the middle of the table, and when people come over, just pull one out. Pull it out at random. See, and then have conversation. These are just merely conversation prompters. Do you pray? If so, what do you pray about? If you had a day all to yourself, where, what would you do and uh, go, and where would you go and what would you do? Like just simple questions that get conversation going. It just makes it fun. But here's the thing. We want you to have intentional conversations. And so I think we have 25 of these. These would be like one per home. And they're a little pricey to print. So one per home. If we need to print more, we'll print more. We can also send digital versions. So you just have these. But we'll, we'll print more of these if they're all gone. But one per house, which means like a building, home, right? Um, if you own multiple homes, don't take multiple. Um, but... <laughs> uh, but uh, here's the thing. I'm going to end with this. Uh, what we're saying is over the next few months, over this semester, there are three things. Seek, eat, and next week we're doing the last one, but you know it rhymes. Uh, but you have to come out back next week to find out the third. Seek, eat, and a third that rhymes. Uh, because we are focusing on how do we simply abide? How do we simply abide so that we as a church have a foundation in Christ, and out of that there will be eternally significant fruit, but that's in God's hands. And so seek and eat. Uh, so abide in Christ by seeking him daily. What Jesus says here is abide in him by seeking him daily and by eating with one another, loving one another, and strengthening one another weekly. See what I did there? Strengthen. Anyways. Uh, so take steps to abide in Christ this week. And he promises when we do that he'll abide in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask that you would, Lord, that you would, this would bear fruit in our souls. And Lord, that you would use it, Lord, just to strengthen us, to help us to abide. Lord, we are given to one another in this body as a gift to one another, a gift of love for love, a gift from you so that we might tangibly experience and be able to express your love. And so, Lord, would you just use these simple kind of goofy things just to help us just make it also enjoyable, Lord, and, and get over making it this stoic thing. But see, there's so much life and joy that you give us. And, Lord, that we would just draw near to one another, love one another, make room for one another. And, Lord, that being in your word every day, make room for you every morning to come to you to bring the things in life, the things that we're wondering about because you're pruning us to bring them before you. 
And Lord, will we be a people, will we be a church that's a simple trellis that the vine can grow up on? Would the structures, all those things, would they just be in their proper place and not replace you? But Lord, would you be our vine and will we be healthy branches? Will we do this for your glory and our joy? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.